Hello and welcome to the Violin Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Laurel Thompson, and I've been looking forward to doing a follow-up episode in my Intonation Mastery series for a very long time. It's been 10 years, in fact, since I put out Intonation Mastery 1 and 2, and those two episodes covered some interesting topics, and you can go check them out, although everything that we're going to be talking about today can also be listened to independently and applied independently, so you don't necessarily need to go back and listen in order. But those two episodes discussed tuning against an open string, as well as using sympathetic vibrations. And we won't really cover those topics today, although I do think that both of those skills are very useful when learning to develop good intonation. Today I wanted to cover some different topics, including ones that aren't us when we're out of tune, (laughs) some external issues that we could experience and that could cause us to sound out of tune, as well as a mental component to being well in tune, some listening exercises, and then some technical considerations that we'll want to cover. And depending on how long it takes to get through my quite extensive list here, this may also be split into two episodes. And I will have a follow-up episode in any case discussing a little bit more about scales and uh, modes, which I'm really looking forward to discussing as well. And before we dive in, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has rated the podcast recently. I really do appreciate that, and it helps others find the show as it improves its ranking in the algorithms. And I also appreciate anyone out there who's taken the time to share an episode with folks who you think might benefit from it. I know in my life, when I get a personal referral for something or for someone, that counts for a lot. So thank you so much for putting your trust in me. And I suppose with that, let's dive on into the episode, starting with some external factors which may affect our intonation. First, I want to make sure that we clarify something, which is there is a difference between tuning and tone. I know that that sounds absolutely like common sense. Why is she even mentioning this? But I have received a number of students over the years who come to me thinking they have terrible intonation. And when we listen, and sometimes even before we have a lesson, I'll ask them to send over a video or a recording just to give me a sense for what's going on. And we'll listen and notice when we listen a little deeper that the tuning is actually fine. Maybe there's a few issues here or there. But overall, it's fine, and I can demonstrate to them that it is fine by maybe singing along to their recording or playing along to their recording, showing them that no, the actual tuning is fine, it's the tone that's the problem. And maybe that has to do with the strings or the bow technique or the violin instrument itself, but we just need to make sure that we can separate that out. So if we hear a squeak, if we hear a tone quality thing that we don't like, then let's not go and mistakenly assume that that's our left hand. Unless we have just really light fingers on the fingerboard and it's just kind of squeaky and airy that way, the left hand really has nothing to do with tone quality. 
And sometimes there are just so many things that we need to fix. It's really hard to separate those two out. But if you can just maybe record yourself and listen through and just imagine what you know the song is supposed to sound like and just listen through any of the tonal issues, then you can determine whether or not it's really tuning. And then if it is, great. This is the episode for you, I hope. And if it's tone, then that's a whole other domain and it would be good to actually back up from the left hand and in my opinion, just to work on tone and bowing for a little while until just even the open strings are sounding really nice. And then we can add the left pan back in and start to worry about tuning. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. And then as far as other external issues that we need to talk about, one would be to clip our fingernails. My fingernails grow so fast. I have to clip my fingernails every single week. And if I don't, it feels like the equivalent of running in stilettos. <laughs> I just don't feel like I have a good control on the strings. I can't rock into position and make those micro adjustments that I need to. I'm just kind of stuck in this situation where my fingers are just a little back too far on the pads and it's really uncomfortable and I just, I keep some clippers with me at all times because you never know. One day it could be passable and then I find myself the next day, it's just so frustrating and so uncomfortable and I just, it's impossible to really feel like I can get a handle on my pieces. So if you have nails like me where you can cut them pretty much down to the nail bed and then there is still some fingertip sticking out beyond, that's great. Some people, however, their nail bed ends right at the tip of their finger. And for these folks, I would recommend especially keeping your fingernails very, very short. And unfortunately with that, you're gonna to have to play a little bit more back on the pads, which can be fine as well. I mean, certainly if we're thinking about maybe a more lush vibrato that we wanna create, that's a nice way to do it. But just as short as comfortable for the left hand is my recommendation. And I can put some photos in the blog post that will accompany this episode so you can see how short I cut my fingernails. The next topic for external issues are your strings. And for me, I need to change my strings about every four months. If it gets to be about five or even six months, I start to get really frustrated with my intonation. This has happened for years. And I'll start to question myself. I'll go like, do I need to clean out my ears? Do I have wax in my ears? What's going on? And then I remember and I look at my calendar and I'm always writing down the date where I change strings. And I see, oh, sure enough, <laughs> I need to change strings. Sometimes the deterioration of strings in, in my experience goes pretty fast. Like they sound great. There's that little break-in period and then they sound great for you know, a good three to four months. And then suddenly it can feel like just in the course of a couple weeks, I'm starting to notice they sound a little dull and I just can't really find the spots. And so for my intonation mastery number one, I talked about the sympathetic vibrations, like I mentioned. And I think a lot of those just sort of die off when our strings get older. And we need to just make sure that our strings are not 
very old if we're frustrated with our intonation because I've had so many students as well who put on new strings and then they just feel like everything's easier to hear, all those nuances that can help us get into position and when we're shifting and all these different factors. And I know that strings can be very expensive these days and this may be a primary reason why many of us try to stretch out the time between string changes pun intended, I suppose. I remember when a pack of Pierastro Ava Parazzi strings or obligato strings was maybe around $100 and that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> now they're well over $100. So they're great strings, but this makes it hard. And for me, having a sponsorship with them has definitely helped a lot, but I still feel guilty changing strings when I know that a lot of people can't change strings that frequently, but we need to find strings that we can't afford on a semi-regular basis and or budget for strings. And we'll know that we'll need to change strings probably at least twice a year and just set that into the budget like we would anything else because why be frustrated? <laughs> so now moving on to a more subtle element that can affect our intonation, we need to look below the strings to our fingerboard. And if you kind of pull your strings away, particularly in first position, you may see little pits in your fingerboard. I find them particularly around where my second fingers fall, especially on the D and A strings. You might find them in some other places where you're commonly playing notes, but the metal strings pushing down into the fingerboard gradually just kind of wears the fingerboard away a little bit. And I've found in recent years that I've need to, needed to get my fingerboard replaced about every two years. It's another, like I said, subtle factor, but when it comes time, it's one of those things again, where I start to just get frustrated with my practice. I keep asking myself, why is this note out of tune? I can't quite hear it, what's going on? And then maybe I'll look at the calendar and my strings aren't old. And then I pry away a string and I see, oh, it looks like my fingerboard is getting pitted. So that is something if we're playing a lot or it's just been a long time that we will need to do from time to time. And a fingerboard can be replaned quite a few times before it needs to be replaced. Along with a planing, they'll have to possibly lower the nut as well as the bridge. So it's a little bit involved and can get a little bit pricey, but not ridiculous. I mean, certainly for me anyway, it's very worthwhile when I weigh that versus all of the frustration that I might be experiencing with a pitted fingerboard. And if you can't quite tell, then I'm sure that any reputable violin shop would be happy to look over your instrument and to let you know if they think it's time or not. And finally, for external factors, I wanted to mention the importance of what we're tuning to. Are we tuning to A440? Are we tuning to A442? It doesn't sound that different, but this can make a huge difference if we are playing with others or if we're playing with an accompanying track. It doesn't make as much of a difference if we're just playing on our own and assuming we've tuned all of our strings to whatever that A is tuned to. So we're tuning in fifths like we would in the orchestra, but if there is another instrument involved, we need to be sure that they are tuned to us or we tune to them. 
Obviously, a piano isn't going to tune to us. We're going to tune to them. It is so important, and I've had some students recently playing along with accompanying tracks, and we listen a little bit, and then we go like, gosh, you sound out of tune. Let's listen a little bit deeper here. And we don't necessarily always know what the instrument in the accompanying track was tuned to. So what I do is I just put on the track for a little while and I just start to play open strings. And there are enough of those notes in there unless we're playing in G flat or some kind of key like that where there are no real open strings. But I'll just play and listen and start to just tune up. If we know, like the Suzuki recordings and stuff like that, they'll give you a tuning tone at the beginning of the CD of the, the track list. I don't know if people use CDs anymore, but anyway, the beginning of the track list, they'll give that tuning tone. And it's really important to actually tune to that. I remember as a child just kind of skipping over that. It was just this annoying sound and I wanted to get on with playing along and uh, imagining my, myself in those concert halls, but it's definitely not a step that we want to skip. And it's just been amazing to see the difference as soon as we get those violins tuned up and then we're good to go. So just to finish up this topic, I just wanted to compare here the tone of the 440A, which is this. This is from my metronome. It's a Matrix uh, MR700 metronome. I think they don't make them anymore. I've had this one since I was a teenager, but uh, they do make met Matrix in general and it has the same pretty much the same features. But anyway, this is the A440. And you wouldn't think that A442 would be much different, but here is the A442, which is another common tuning. Right? Definitely noticeably higher. Back to A440. And back to A442. So with something like that, we can imagine how far off that would Put the rest of our fingers if we're not listening really carefully. The great pedagogue Ivan Galamian supposedly recommended that his students don't tune too often because he wanted them really listening and adjusting their fingering based on what they're hearing rather than like a muscle memory. And I think that's definitely what we all should be doing. There is a lot less muscle memory in my mind involved in playing a stringed instrument than we might think. It's definitely mostly the ear in my opinion. But still, it is really disconcerting when we're playing with something else and we're tuned differently. And every time we hit one of those open strings, it just sounds off. <laughs> and uh, I did have a student recently who I was really pleased to hear all the other notes other than her open strings when she came to the lesson, um, tuned really well against the accompanying track. But yeah, it was clear once we listened a little deeper that we needed to tune the violin also to match the track. So I'm sure there might be a few external issues that I'm missing, in which case I will do a follow-up. But those feel like the most important to me and the ones that I have noticed the most difference with myself and my students. So I hope maybe one of those makes a difference for you as well. And now on to things that we do have to do to adjust our intonation. Really my best tip for improving your intonation is improving your audiation. And I've written some articles for Strings Magazine on this. I've talked quite extensively through my blog about better listening skills 
and I encourage you to check out those posts and articles, which I can link to in the show notes. But the question is, can you hear it? You're playing something. Can you put down your instrument and can you hear the notes that you want to play? A way to test this, you know, maybe we're playing something complicated. We might listen to the recording and we'll turn it off at some certain point. And then can we hear the next few bars at least? And they will do that all the way through the song we're trying to play. Can we turn it off and then can our ear keep going? Are there any shaky notes in the mix? And it's fine if there are. We just need to bolster that part of the piece, that phrase, figure out how that's really supposed to sound. And there are different camps, some teachers who really incorporate a lot of listening into the learning process. This would be people that, like me, were trained in the Suzuki method as children. And then there are other camps that are more into let's almost do like kind of a sight singing and will really stress the importance of learning to read the music. And then from reading the music, we'll start to develop hopefully a sense of intonation. I find unfortunately the latter doesn't work very well. And the teachers who say, throw away those CDs from your book. They're no good. Um, It is very helpful to listen to good recordings. Now YouTube can have some good recordings, but you kind of have to wade through. Oftentimes the ones done by students, they might be very inspiring, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend listening to those because there are often, even with a prodigy, a young prodigy, some issues here and there with intonation. And so better to listen to professionals. You can also listen to other instruments that don't have this problem of intonation. So I started playing piano before I started playing violin. I did a few years of piano lessons and I think that was very helpful because the piano, assuming it's in tune, is in tune. And so listening to piano could be really helpful, just different piano pieces. It's kind of training your ear for good intonation. Another test that we can do is if you feel like your intonation is really suffering in a piece that you're learning, sometimes I'll have my students go and we particularly might do this in the very beginning or we might do this when they're learning a new position and we'll go and try and just by ear play a piece that they know very, very well. So we might choose a Christmas song, just something simple, maybe a folk song from childhood. Everyone knows things like Mary Had a Little Lamb, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's amazing to see their eyes light up after they've attempted a little folk song like this because they're hearing, wow, it was in tune. Or if it wasn't perfectly in tune for every note, It's like they were able to make those adjustments really quickly because they knew what every single note was supposed to sound like. And that's a really good learning for us to take back to our more difficult pieces, especially if we have a lot of accidentals, there's a lot of chromatics, there's a lot of shifts. Do we really know what this is supposed to sound like? And if we don't, then how can we expect to get there? It's our ear that needs to guide our fingers into place. And if our ear has no idea what that next note is going to sound like, and maybe we're just kind of reacting off of the sound we hear and going, well, maybe that's right. I think maybe that's right. I'll just keep going. You know, then it's like we're never really taking control of our intonation and really deeply considering it 
it's just kind of leaving it up for chance. So can you hear it? My best tip for intonation. Really with that tip, other than the external issues, you probably don't need anything else I'm gonna talk about. Or certainly do this first, and then if you're still having problems, then the rest of this episode and my other two episodes can be very useful. Yeah, I just can't stress the importance of this enough. And then piggybacking on this skill of audiation, this ability to hear music in our head, are the mental maps and the finger patterns that we need to develop. And so I had a student recently where she was struggling with some three octave scales. She was trying to learn quite a few scales at the same time because of the requirements for an audition coming up. And especially in some of the higher positions she was getting up to, we noticed pretty quickly that she didn't actually know what her finger patterns were. Like she didn't know which fingers were supposed to be half steps versus whole steps. She was just following her ear, being guided by the audiation, which was good, but she was having to make those decisions very quickly in the moment and kind of guessing what the next step was gonna be. And so we noticed this and I said, okay, we're gonna need to figure out all the finger patterns and then you'll just be able to fly through. And she was also concerned about getting up to speed. She was going pretty slowly and didn't feel like she was gonna be able to speed it up and still have good intonation. So we just figured out what the finger patterns were and then she, with a big smile on her face, was like, yay, <laughs> I can get this. So something as simple as that can make all the difference. And I don't know how many students over the years have come to me and I have them play a scale and they say, well, I've done the G scale. And I say, okay, can you do how many octaves? And they say, well, I could probably do two octaves maybe. And then they go up and they start on the G string and they go up the D string and everything's going fine. And then once they get to the A string, they add the C sharp. <laughs> and then once they get to the uh, E string, then they add the G sharp in there. So they're basically doing that high second finger pattern all the way across all four strings. And they finish and they go back down. And I kind of smile and I say, well, unfortunately, you played a couple extra sharps, but we can fix that really easily. And then they go, oh yeah, oh shoot, you know, I remember this from way back when, yeah, sorry. But just something as simple as that, like just knowing that the key of G, if we're playing in first position, we have that high second finger, G and D strings, and then we have that low second finger, A and E strings. Simple, but can we apply it? And I really like to have my students, especially once we're starting to get into some other positions or some more difficult key signatures, to have a fingerboard chart. I have them print out and then we fill it out, basically, what are the available fingerings. And so they really have a visual of the fingerboard and the patterns that they're gonna be covering. So that's very important, creating these mental maps. Can you see the note on your fingerboard? Can you imagine the finger sitting there? Can you imagine the other fingers around it? If you're not a very mental kind of visual type person, then maybe it's more of a feeling thing. Can you feel those two fingers touching that need to be touching? And really creating that so that the music can become kind of embodied in you rather than just these random notes on the page that you're reacting to as you hear them. 
For any beginners or intermediates out there who want some additional help learning finger patterns other than pieces and scales and maybe some etudes and exercises, I can highly recommend the book Fingerboard Geography by Barbara Barber. It's, the subtitle is An Intonation Note Reading Theory Shifting System. Yes, it's very helpful and she has these color-coded maps of the different finger patterns and it's a great supplement to the very early episodes of this podcast as well where I went through all the different finger patterns in first position on all the strings. So that's obviously also a good resource for hearing and practicing along with different finger patterns. But more so what I was just talking about, it's just having the mental picture of what these patterns are and knowing that we're going for a high three pattern versus a low one and low two pattern or whatever it is and not just playing defensive and reacting in the moment. So we're coming up on a half an hour here and I'm about halfway <laughs> through my list. So I think we'll wrap up this episode here, keep things a little more short and digestible. I know there's a lot of great information and podcasts out there these days. And I know I often struggle to find the time to listen to everything that people are putting out there. So hopefully you'll try some of these different approaches and then be ready for the next installment, which I will put out next month. I hope these tips prove beneficial and let me know how it goes. Again, I'm Laurel Thompson and my website is laurelthompson.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-L-T-H-O-M-S-E-N. You can reach me via email. My email is laurel at laurelthompson.com and I will have all these details in the show notes. Sometimes it can take me a week or so, but I do personally respond to all the emails that I receive. And I'm always appreciating your comments, questions, suggestions for topics or people you'd like me to interview on the show. So keep them coming. I should also mention that the intro and between music you're hearing today is a song called Morning Time Lovers Waltz. This is a song written by my partner, Dan Frechette, and I arranged the violin part. I thought it'd be a good one to include in this episode because when I arranged the high violin part you heard at the very beginning, and I'll put it at the end here again, we were traveling in British Columbia doing a tour and just working on some material on some off days, and Dan already had this interesting chord progression that you hear underneath those high notes. And I was just improvising up the neck of the violin and came up with these notes, this kind of a little twisted, little mysterious sort of riff. We recorded it and that's what it was. And if I haven't played that song for a while, I find that it takes me a minute to really figure out what those notes are again, because I've never actually written it down on a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple years ago, it was actually earlier in the pandemic, and since we hadn't been touring for a while, we weren't really practicing as well. Then we started practicing again because we felt like we were losing our material, and when it came time to try out that song again, I'm getting so frustrated because I'm like, what are these actual notes that I'm playing? And it really helped me to go through that part and really know, okay, this is the note that I'm actually playing. And then I go down to the B flat. Okay. And how interesting that was. 
like I had the melody so clear, you know, I totally could answer that question. Can you hear it? Yes, I can hear it. But somehow that mental mapping wasn't quite as strong as I thought it was. So that was a good learning experience for me. And I wanted to share a little clip of that. There are vocals as well as a music video that you can check out. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And if you have some time and want to poke around my Violin Geek blog, you can find that on my website. I mentioned it earlier. Definitely a lot of intonation topics there, as well as this past month, I put out a post with my number one tip for making a practice habit stick. Yes, it's a rhyme and harder to say than it was to write, but I hope you will find some use in that. It is my number one tip, and I find that students who follow it do develop a practice routine that does stick, and the ones who don't, well, it can be tough. But if you're a student out there, a musician out there, you're a parent out there, you're a teacher out there, I hope you'll be helped by this. Again, it seems like a pretty common sense idea once you read it, but there are so many people who struggle with creating a practice routine. It seems to be the number one thing that really does help it along. So please enjoy that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And until next time, happy practicing. Mm -hmm.